Over the past few years, we've seen the election of rogue prosecutors and activist judges who have replaced the public safety first mindset with a very different and harmful agenda of reforming the criminal justice system under the guise of social justice. Their failed policies have had a drastic effect on our society, leading to an increase in violent crime in some of our most vulnerable communities. Today we're joined by Rafael Manguel, a senior fellow and head of research of policing and public safety initiatives at the Manhattan Institute. Raphael is a contributing editor of the City Journal and has been featured in numerous publications in several national and local television programs. I'm Patrick Gillis, National President of Fraternal Order Police, and this is The Blue View. Raphael, thank you for joining us today to, to talk about a really important issue uh, for law enforcement in, in every community in this uh, in this country right now. Before we dive into the rising crime across this country and the causes for it, could you just give our viewers and our listeners just a, a little bit of a background of who you are and, and the work that you do? Sure. So, um, yeah, my name is Rafael Mengual. I uh, work for an organization called the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research, which is a think tank that focuses primarily on urban policy, but not exclusively. Um, one of the ideas that our organization is uh, really famously associated with is uh, the advent of the broken windows theory of policing. Um, George Kelling was a longtime senior fellow and someone with whom I had the honor and privilege of working uh, later in his life. Um, I've been here at, at MI for uh, seven years and some change now. Uh, I'm trained as a lawyer, so uh, don't hold that against me. Um, so I, I went to DePaul Law School in uh, the city of Chicago, um, which is where my wife's originally from. We have lots of family out there on the west side of that city, which is uh, kind of a rough neighborhood. Um, originally from Brooklyn, New York, where my father was uh, an NYPD detective, which is uh, how I first got really uh, interested in you know, the topic of policing and crime and criminal justice. And uh, yeah, I've been covering it for the better part of a decade now and um, just recently wrote a book about it. And um, I'm excited to talk to you. Oh, great. And, and uh, it's what a, uh, what, a, what a timely topic right now. You know, crime in this country is, uh, is soaring and it's something that's undeniable. I mean, it, the data is, it speaks for itself. You know, in, in the last uh, 10 years, we've seen a 50% increase uh, in crime. And using the Federal Bureau of Investigation's crime data, uh, it's showing that uh, this year, or 2020, we had 650,000 violent offenses. Uh, and in contrast that to 2010, it was 315,000. Uh, our communities across this country are, are facing real life consequences for, for a lot of the unchecked crime that's happening uh, in this country. And, uh, you know, just look at 2011 uh, through 2020, the percentage of violent crimes against uh, those, uh, you know, uh, uh, those where the victims are black has increased um, from 3.2% to its peak of 32.7% of, uh, in 2020. So, so in, there's a lot of dynamics that are causing crime to go up, but it's undeniable. Those numbers are, 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 are relative. And, uh, and, and often what we do is what your numbers are impersonal. We don't, we don't, we talk about crime going up and, you know, percentages and all, and we don't see, we don't recognize that, uh, that those impersonal numbers are real families that are forever changed. Talk, if you could, what do you see as the main causes that are, are, are right now having crime spike so high? Yeah, I think there, there are two kind of overarching causes. I mean, obviously this is a multifactorial problem like any other public policy problem, right? So it's, it's, it's complicated, but I, I don't want to just kick the bucket by um, leaving it at that. I do think that there are two really big overarching contributors to this problem. One is the 
erosion of the willingness on the part of the people in charge of our criminal justice systems to incapacitate likely and dangerous and repeat offenders through incarceration. There has been just a multi-decades long campaign against so-called mass incarceration that has really influenced um, a lot of uh, uh, public policy in this country. And which is why I think we in cities like Chicago, Baltimore, St. Louis, Louisville, uh, places that have really been struggling with uh, elevated violent crime rates in particular, you tend to see that a lot of the cases uh, that are cleared involve people who have very lengthy criminal histories, people who are no stranger to the criminal justice system, people who have been given multiple second chances and blown them. Um, so, you know, in terms of who who is sort of guilty of that, I think we're seeing this trend take hold in prosecutors' offices around the country. We've seen the advent of the progressive prosecutor movement and its electoral successes in major cities across the country. And we're now at a point in which nearly 50 million Americans are living in a jurisdiction with a, a self-described progressive prosecutor. But we also see it on the part of judges um, who are increasingly less willing uh, to hold people in pretrial detention, who are increasingly less willing to hand down hefty sentences. Um, we're also seeing it on the part of parole boards who are increasingly willing uh, to release people from uh, prison earlier than uh, their sentences might indicate. Um, and, and we're also seeing it from lawmakers who have really uh, done their darndest over the last you know, decade plus to enact lots of criminal justice reforms that I think were well-meaning in terms of their intent, but have turned out to systematically lower the transaction costs of crime commission and also raise the transaction costs of criminal enforcement, which is why you know, uh, I think we, we see something on, on the second uh, sort of primary cause, which is I think an erosion in the morale and the willingness of police officers to take chances with proactivity when they don't feel like the system has their back. And I think that's also one of the reasons why we've seen this huge recruitment and retention crisis that police departments across the country are experiencing. So you know, we've seen a big decline in the number of, of active police officers, particularly in urban environments, which um, you know, is really, really important because the overall number of, of cops on the beat hasn't changed as much as uh, the number of police officers in urban jurisdictions. And what I think we're seeing is what you know, we see a lot here in my home city of New York, uh, which is police officers leaving urban departments for suburban departments or ex-urban departments where the risks are not as pronounced and where there's a sense that your work is, is more appreciated. And so, you know, there's plenty of data showing that when police pull back, when proactivity rates go down, crime's going to go up. You couple that with an erosion on the part of the criminal justice system um, with respect to its ability to keep people off the street when they get brought in. Uh, and I think we start to see why we're having some of the problems that we're having. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I like to tell people over and over again is like police are actually doing a pretty good job um, when you consider the fact that in a city like Chicago, for example, the average shooting or homicide suspect has 12 prior arrests. I mean, what does that tell you? It tells you that the officers are actually focusing on the right people, but it's the system that's not doing its part to keep that individual off the street. Yeah, I do. And I want to come, I want to talk about the, those rogue prosecutors and the progressive judges. But before we, we get there, let's let's talk a little bit about the fundamentals of, uh, of, of combating crime. Uh, we all know anyone working in law enforcement knows that uh, a large percentage of the, the you know, vast majority of, of violent crime is committed by a very small percentage of people. Uh, and, and our ability to be able to take those small percentage of people out of the, uh, you know, the lives of, of people that they you know, that they prey on, uh, that's how we reduce crime. 
Um, and, we, and we're missing that point. What we're seeing is there are two factors. One, we're, we're creating that revolving door. And we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that. But there, there's another factor here, too. It is the intervention. It's the intervention by doing the things that we do that reverses course on a lot of people. So what we're doing in, in a lot of ways, these very policies and in, 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 in the way of approaching crime is really creating more violent criminals that are, are feeling more emboldening. And, and just expanding because of their lack of consequences. You, you have any feel on, on, on that and you know, your thoughts? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, the, the, the central role that I think the criminal justice system is able to play with respect to crime reduction is incapacitation. We talk a lot about the ability to rehabilitate people or deter people. The reality is, is that beyond general deterrence, um, which I do think is is substantial and meaningful, um, incapacitation is really where the criminal justice system makes its money. It's taking people who are high rate offenders and keeping them off the street. There's research showing, for example, that for the average prisoner, for every year that they're incarcerated, um, eight to 10 index offenses are abated. Um, those are victims that are, are feeling relief. There's, there's a reality to that. You mentioned something in, uh, earlier in your, in your lead up to the first question, which was that, you know, we tend to really focus on the data and, you know, I kind of end my book with an acknowledgement of this, but, you know, in the, in the New York times, I had a piece, um, uh, in January of last year where I said, you know, statistics are really poor stand-ins for the souls that have been stolen from murder by murderers, from the trauma that's been experienced, right? We, we, we tend to sort of dehumanize the experiences by focusing on the data, which, you know, focusing on the data is important, but we can't lose sight of that, that kind of really human impact. And so, you know, that really, I think, makes the incapacitation point all the more pronounced because, the reality is we don't know how to rehabilitate people on at scale or with reliable sort of levels of success. Um, and so we really ought to sort of concentrate on the thing that we know the criminal justice system can do well, and that is taking people off the street and keeping them there for enough time that communities can feel a real sense of relief and then have the space that they need to grow and fortify themselves against the kind of crime increases that a lot of places are seeing now. So really, this leads us into what the, what the big big issue here is, and that's what I, I want to talk about, is, is something that we've been signaling for quite some time, this revolving door for criminals, uh, violent criminals. Uh, and, and look, we all recognize that uh, the criminal justice system, you know, law enforcement can't fix everything. You know, we're not responsible for poverty. We're not responsible for failed school systems. We're not responsible for broken family units. Yet we find ourselves having to deal with all of those things, and, and, and we carry the burden of it. Uh, we're just, uh, I guess, accessible, low-hanging fruit in, in a whole lot of failed policy. Which, which people feel frustrated. So I can certainly understand that part, and there needs to be some solutions to these. But we can't ignore the fact that violent offenders are getting out of jail on sweetheart deals or that revolving door, uh, just as in, in many cases, walking out the same time as the officer had booked them. And, and I'm going to tell you another thing that we can't ignore. We cannot ignore that violent offenders, especially offenders of gun violence, who are walking out of the door you know, just literally walking out, uh, not held accountable. We can't ignore the fact that we've taken them off the streets only for them to be put back on the streets and further victimize. And there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of murders that are caused by people that we've already taken off the streets. As yeah. a matter of fact, I'm going to go a step further. We had two incidents uh, just recently where three officers were killed by people that we took off the streets and prosecutors uh, gave them sweetheart deals. They walked out and they continue their, their, their carnage. 
uh, just uh, just uh, you know recently, uh, you had an officer who took someone off the street in Baltimore, only to be drugged by a car and uh, life forever changed because of that action. Somebody has got to hold these people accountable. They are preying on the very communities that they claim that they're trying to help. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this whole movement of rogue prosecution and 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 uh, and you know judges that are that are not holding criminals accountable and creating a far greater crisis here than uh, than anyone can imagine. Well, I think what we're seeing here are policy decisions that are a function of genuine subscription to a set of beliefs that is flawed, to a narrative that is false, right? Uh, the, the idea that the United States has a mass incarceration crisis um, is a highly, highly flawed idea, but it is an idea that is at the root, I think, of a lot of the decisions that lead to this kind of revolving door of justice, right? There's this sense, there's this narrative, there's this story that people continue to tell without real challenge that the United States systematically denies criminal offenders their second chances to which they're somehow entitled. Um, that's just not true. If you look at the average person in a, a state prison in the United States today, they have about 10 prior arrests and five prior convictions. All right, these are not people who have been denied second chances. They have been given multiple chances over and over again. I already mentioned the statistic out of Chicago where the average shooting suspect has 12 prior arrests. 20% of them have more than 20 prior arrests. You see that same kind of statistic replicated in city after city after city in the United States. And, you know, it, Really what's behind it is this misguided sense that we incarcerate far too much, um, that we incarcerate for petty offenses. That's just not true. If you look at our prison population, what you'll find is that the vast majority of people incarcerated in the United States are there for violent offenses. And if they're not there primarily for violent offenses, they're there having violent criminal histories or very extensive criminal histories, they're also extremely likely to reoffend. I think a recidivism rate uh, in terms of state prisoners hovers around 80%, um, which is absolutely abysmal. Um, so the idea is that, you know, we're actually wrong about a lot of, of, of the sort of conventional wisdom that I think informs the reform movement um, and that is behind a lot of the prosecutorial and judicial decisions that lead to these kinds of incidents where police officers are having to take the same individual off the street again and again, which ultimately I think makes them a lot less likely to want to take the sort of risks that are involved in making that arrest in the first place because, you know, um, uh, why put your life on the line if, if the system isn't going to back you up by taking that person and keeping them? Um, there's another idea, though, that's at, I think, the root of a lot of this is that, you know, so-called uh, that, that we can kind of uh, even or neatly put people into categories of violent and nonviolent criminals. Right. So you often hear people say, like, oh, well, this is just, you know, a nonviolent drug crime. The reality is that there's a lot of overlap between who commits really serious violent crimes and who commits sort of lower level nonviolent crimes. And even the most violent people are not going to commit violent crimes on a daily basis. But if you're a drug dealer and you're also a violent criminal, you're going to be dealing drugs at a much higher rate. And so, you know, when when you are, are, are able to, um, as a police officer, get somebody in for um, a quote unquote lower level offense, what the system has done is it has decided that that's the only thing that we need to look at to assess whether or not there's risk involved in putting this person back out on the street. And what we find out is that that's a really flawed way of approaching it. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that people who commit really serious crimes often also commit not so serious crimes. And so when they come into contact with the criminal justice system, what we really ought to be doing is a more kind of holistic assessment of what their risk profile is. 
And if we were to do that, I think we would avoid a lot of the situations in which we find ourselves, in which someone, you know, is arrested for, um, you know, a misdemeanor or a low-level nonviolent felony, and then they get spit back out on the street, and then everyone's surprised that they, uh, you know, were found uh, carrying a gun or that they went on to, you know, to kill somebody. And the reality is, is that we have to acknowledge that criminals don't specialize. Um, they often commit a wide array of, of criminal offenses, and so we should take advantage um, you know, of, of the opportunities that we have to incapacitate them when they do come in contact with the criminal justice system and simply saying like, oh, well, this arrest is for, you know, a, a lower level offense, you know, we're, we're going to spit this person out. That, that's, not, that's not good policy. That's, and it reflects bad science. Yeah. And, and you know, you're right. Data, data tells us the things we need to know. Uh, yeah. There's no question. I'm going to throw another one at you. Um, across this country, we have cities that are experiencing their highest crime rates ever, violent crime rates ever. Uh, and in contrast, we have cities across this country that are not experiencing that same thing. Yeah. Now, the one commonality we see with this, these cities are they're the ones that are most progressive and with, the, with the progressive prosecutors that are creating policies that are clearly – Clearly, if you just look at the data, data tells you that we have some failed policies here. And a lot of these policies are, are, are direction. These uh, philosophies are done in a vacuum where they're not including a law enforcement perspective. The very people who are involved in this every single day. Um, at what point, you know, even even with all of the damage done to law enforcement over the last two years, uh, we did a course correction. I mean, these things happen. We, we recognize things don't work. We look at the data. Data tells us, and, and across this country, cities are, are doing the right thing. They're fixing problems that were done in a knee-jerk reaction, and, you know, more emotion uh, than based on, on anything. At what point does the, does the, the judicial side, the, you know, the, the prosecution side, at what point do they recognize that these fails policies are costing people their lives? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think what we see is a real unwillingness to examine the role that mass decarceration may have been playing in the crime rise of the last few years. Um, and I think that's because there's just been so much uh, investment, both, you know, in terms of uh, uh, emotional investment, social investment, capital investment in the sort of programs that have been put into practice and in, uh, across the country and, and and not just in progressive cities we see you know lots of 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 sort of statewide reforms that have you know done a lot of similar things you know uh, bail reforms um sentencing reforms uh you know and and then of course you know you have the kind of quote-unquote progressive prosecutor movement um that has really kind of stepped up their <laughs> their game to a whole other level um kind of making unilateral decisions to abrogate entire bodies of law and and choose you know um not to prosecute certain offenses or not to pursue certain sentencing enhancements um but i think it all reflects a sincere ideological commitment to the idea that incarceration is always bad on net, that decarceration can be considered a public policy good unto itself, that depolicing has to be at the core of any real reform effort. Um, and I think, uh, obviously, that they're wrong, 
but um, I, I don't think we have yet seen the kind of backlash that is going to be needed for them to re-examine uh, these questions. At the end of the day, I think a lot of these people are political actors and they're going to respond to incentives. And when, you know, outside of the sort of unique uh, recall that we just saw of Chesa Boudin in um, San Francisco, you know, look at Philadelphia. Larry Krasner was, you know, sailed to his reelection with, uh, I think, less than 20 percent of eligible voters turning out. Um, You know, so until there is a a real sort of sense of uh, uh, need to reexamine these policies, uh, which I think is going to be ultimately a function of political calculations, I I don't think we're going to see that kind of reexamination in the near future. In terms of what motivates them, I mean, again, I I do think a lot of these individuals are sincere. I think their policy orientation is driven by really terrible anecdotes, um, and they understandably want to do something to make sure that those stories never happen again, although we don't see that same kind of uh, uh, effectiveness of anecdotes on the other side where you have, you know, countless murders committed by people who, you know, were out on bail or given probation or, you know, just released on parole. And those kinds of anecdotes never seem to be enough. Um, but also, you know, there is some research that I think has been overstated that informs a lot of of why so many policymakers have have kind of bought into this concept. You often hear people talk about like the criminogenic impact of incarceration. People will say, and we we shouldn't incarcerate, uh, you know, um, uh, except in the extreme circumstances, because the research shows that incarceration is bad. And, you know, that's only really half or a quarter true. Um, What they're referring to is a, a still growing body of research that does show that for certain low-level, low-risk offenders, um, incarceration can produce worse outcomes than an incarceration alternative. But that's not the sort of general prisoner. That's not the general jail inmate, right? When you're looking at assessing the causal impact of some kind of treatment like incarceration, what you want to do is create a situation or find a situation in which the decision to incarcerate is random. But of course, it's never random, right? People get incarcerated for really good reasons, and people who are steered away from incarcerations are steered away for really good reasons. Um, So how do we assess the causal impact? What you do is you look at a population of criminal offenders who are called on the margin of incarceration. They're engaged in criminal conduct that makes incarceration an option, but not a certainty. They don't have super extensive criminal histories. Uh, they're not committing violent felonies. And then you you sort of confine that assessment to a jurisdiction in which you can categorize the judges that they will randomly draw as really punitive or really lenient. And you only look at the judges on the tail end and you look at that same cohort of offenders. And yes, it does turn out in a lot of cases that those marginal offenders who are steered to punitive judges and end up incarcerated have significantly worse outcomes when it comes to recidivism, et cetera, than those who are steered away from incarcerations. But again, that population of offenders is not at all representative of who's incarcerated and who's likely to get incarcerated. So when you take that kind of research and you graft it on to a body of offenders that's much more risky, that's much more dangerous, um, 
that's much more prolific in their offending patterns, then I think we start to see some of the problems that we're seeing. But, you know, of course, these half-truths, they get a lot of momentum before the challenges to them have a chance to put their pants on and, you know, get out of the house. So um, I think that's the uphill battle that we're facing right now. Yeah, you mentioned uh, something earlier, and it's the unmitigated uh, uh, unmitigated challenge of, of bail reform. And, and what it's causing in communities uh, across this country. Could you maybe dig a little deeper into to bail reform and how it's affecting how it's affecting our overall crime rate? Absolutely. Look, I mean, one thing I want to say is that, you know, the impetus for bail reform is not crazy, right? It is, in fact, a legitimate critique to say that a system that centers the inquiry of pretrial release on essentially wealth can produce a lot of inefficiencies and inequities, right? You can end up with a situation in which a really wealthy but dangerous defendant gets to buy his or her freedom, whereas a relatively harmless but indigent defendant gets stuck behind bars because they can't afford $500 or whatever it is. Um, So we want to avoid that. That's a legitimate critique. That's a legitimate aim of a reform effort. The problem is, is that the the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. And so what you end up doing is creating these systems like New York did, in which you're not only lowering the likelihood that people will be incarcerated in pretrial detention um, uh, as a result of not being able to meet relatively low amounts of bail, despite the fact that they don't pose a significant risk to society. But what New York did was it it did that and then also banned uh, or continued to ban judges from even considering dangerousness or risk to society. And even in the jurisdictions in which the bail reforms are drawn up well, like New Jersey, for example, which is um, uh, now re-examining its recent bail reform from 2014, um, is that you still need a willingness on the part of prosecutors to seek pretrial detention in appropriate cases and a willingness on the part of judges to actually subject people to pretrial detention in appropriate cases. And what we end up seeing is that if you give people an inch, they'll take a yard. And so the problem is, is that you lose out on these incapacitation benefits because the vast majority of people who are charged with criminal offenses are guilty. They will end up being found guilty. And the ones that are going to get incarcerated, you know, um, will get, uh, uh, you know, time. And so you're, you end up losing incapacitation benefits for a significant amount of time, given how long people would otherwise spend in pretrial detention. So, you know, if you've got somebody who is a poses a high risk of reoffending and, you know, they are coming, they have, you know, 15 prior arrests, they have, you know, two violent felony convictions and, you know, three misdemeanor convictions in their criminal history. And they come before a judge on a drug case, you know, uh, let's say possession with the intent to sell, there's a good likelihood that that person is going to get kicked under a bail reform regime and get to spend the next year and a half until, you know, their case is resolved outside as opposed to inside. And that, that poses a real danger to the community. And so one of the things that defenders of bail reform like to say is that, well, you know, the research on bail reform, uh, you know, shows that uh, the pretrial population offends at the same rate post-reform that they did pre-reform. It's like, yeah, but you're dealing with a bigger pretrial population now. So even if that 
population offends at the same rate, you're still talking about an aggregate increase in crime, crime that has real victims, that imposes real costs on society. Um, and so, you know, I think we have to get away from this idea that bail is simply uh, that bail simply exists to secure someone's return to court. That's just not true. The Supreme Court has said that it's perfectly constitutionally permissible to hold people in pretrial detention simply on the grounds that they are dangerous. I agree with the reform uh, sort of community insofar as I think that we should reorient the pretrial release inquiry around risk and not wealth. That said, I wouldn't get rid of cash bail altogether either for the simple reason that I do think that there is some subpopulation of offenders whose risk you could sufficiently mitigate by tying their good behavior while awaiting trial to their bail, as opposed to um, uh, just incarcerating them to mitigate that risk. So, you know, for, for those people, I do think we should try and release them as long as we have reason to believe you know, through uh, an algorithmic risk assessment or something like that, that we can mitigate their risk by tying their behavior to the cash that they put up. Um, and we should give them that option. But for the most part, if you're dangerous, you should go in, irrespective of how how much money you have. And if you're not dangerous, you shouldn't go in, irrespective of how little money you have. And if we just did that, if we were honest about it, um, I think we would likely see much better outcomes in terms of public safety much more and much more trust from the community. I mean, if you are a witness in a case, how much more likely are you going to be to cooperate with prosecutors and police if you know that the person that you're going to testify against is actually going to be on the block for the entire pretrial period? Yeah, I mean, that's a real concern. I mean, I've actually had people uh, in law enforcement and in prosecutors' offices tell me that, that that, that, that is actually coming up um, from witnesses who are, are now uh, facing a new level of fear um, with respect to cooperation, simply because they know that there's a high likelihood that the person they testify against is going to end up back out on the street. You know, let me, uh, you know, I, I think anyone who works in law enforcement, regardless of what role, whether it's a you know, police officer on the street or it's a, it's a prosecution of it, I, I think I think we all are invested in one thing. We we all recognize that part of our job is to improve the criminal justice system as we go on. It's It's not perfect. It's always there are human elements involved, and anytime the human elements is also always going to be a you know uncertain outcomes, uh, and so we 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 should all be committed to find a, a better path uh, of doing the things that we do. Uh, it's part it's just as much as our job as it is the policing that we do or the prosecution we do. Um, and you're right, uh, you know people people of means have the ability to provide better, you know better protections for themselves and people who don't, you know, often find themselves victim to it. it there is, there's a real issue there, but, but I want to, I want to talk about something else that I think is often gets lost in this whole thing. We all recognize and accept that we need to improve the criminal justice system. Who's being impacted by the, by the really extreme approaches we're taking. And, and, uh, you know, Working in law enforcement, I think you ask anyone in law enforcement, really it is. It's those communities that supposedly we're trying to help the most. And what does the data show of the rise in crime? Who is it affecting most? Because I think we're losing that. Uh, you know, let's fix it, but also recognize what we're doing is causing it's causing real harm, irre irreparable harm in communities across this country. I think that's exactly right. And this is something that it's an important thread that often does get left, you know, uh, sort of lost in the conversation. You know, I think it's important to take a step back and just reiterate what often motivates um, a lot of the, the sort of 
more extreme uh, versions of, of reform efforts that we've seen. And that is a, uh, I think, again, sincere concern with things like racial disparities in our criminal justice system. Um, and I think that it cannot be overstated the degree to which that motivates reformers. Um, but what bothers me about that framing is that we often leave out the fact that there is a huge disproportionality in terms of victimization. And so if we are going to create a system in which the risk of victimization goes up, we have to understand that that risk is not going to be equally borne by every American citizen uh, to the same degree. Crime is very, very, very hyper-concentrated, both geographically um, and demographically. So, you know, in this country, any given year, about 2% of U.S. counties are seeing about 50% of U.S. murders. Um, and within those counties, crime is, you know, very, very, very concentrated. So if you look at, you know, a city like Chicago, for example, citywide murder rate might be, you know, 18, 19 per 100,000. Um, if you look at some of the more dangerous neighborhoods in that city, you might find a murder rate of 70 per 100,000, 80 per 100,000, 100 per 100,000, um, several times uh, higher than what the citywide rate is. And what that tells you is that there are communities that are, are, are bearing an undue burden with respect uh, to crime, and they're shouldering far more than a lot of other communities are than most other communities are, right? The vast majority of the United States is as safe as the safest places in the world. Um, unfortunately, what we have in the U.S. are just more pockets of really hyper-concentrated uh, uh, areas in which crime just, uh, you know, proliferates at an extreme level, and, and, and that's really troubling. But it's also demographically concentrated among young black and Hispanic males primarily. So in, in my home city uh, of New York, every single year for as far back as we have data, which is 2008, a minimum, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims are either black or Hispanic. Almost all of them are male. In some years, it's as high as 98. That's one of the most pronounced and persistent racial disparities in our criminal justice data. And it doesn't drive nearly as much concern um, as the disparities in enforcement outcomes. And we have to understand that those disparities in enforcement outcomes and arrests and incarcerations are a function of disparities and victimizations. And so if the criminal justice system does its job, uh, uh, you know, if it, if it, achieves its mission as stated by the people at the helm of that system, right? I mean, you talk to any police chief, you know, most prosecutors, although that's becoming less true today, you know, most criminal court judges, most lawmakers, they want to reduce crime. And so, and, and that's, that's as true in the tough on crime space as it is anywhere else. And <clears throat> excuse me, if, if that system works, who benefits? Well, we have data on this. If you look at the, the homicide decline from 1990 to 2014, that decline added 0.14 years to the life expectancy of white men. Yeah. It added 1.0 years to the life expectancy of black men. That is a huge, huge disparity in the dispersion of the benefits associated with the success of the criminal justice system. And I think that just way too often gets lost um, in, in this conversation. And it's something that, you know, I've really tried to, to bring back uh, through the work that I do. Yeah, Raphael, I, it, we cannot, we cannot uh, ignore the fact that there are other causations for the rise in crime. And everything's being thrown in the criminal justice system and how the criminal justice system is broken. But but a lot of this is driven by poverty. A lot of this is driven by by failed school systems. A lot of this is driven by just, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the, uh, I guess the, 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 uh, temperature or the health of a community. 
all of these factors. And if we don't, you know, we could talk all we want about doing reform and how it's going to affect, have an effect on crime and improve the quality of life for, for people in communities. But until we start talking about all of these other things that add to, to you know, just uh, hopelessness of communities, we're never, we're never going to police ourselves out of this. Um, you know, we, you know, I want to, sorry, I was, I just want to add something there because, you know, I do think there's some truth to that. However, on the poverty point, I want to push back a little bit. And I talk about this in my book, but I don't think that we have, that poverty is something that has to be addressed in order to reduce violent crime specifically. I do think that the research shows a pretty strong link between poverty and property crime, things like theft and larcenies, um, but when it comes to violence, we've actually done a really good job as a society of getting violent crime under control in the past without really doing much, if anything, at all about poverty. And I just want to give a couple of data points um, uh, to, to support this idea. New York City, 1990, we saw our peak number of homicides, 2,262 that year. 2017, we saw our, our, our valley, 292. During that period, the poverty rate remained essentially steady. In fact, in 1989, New York City's poverty rate was slightly lower than it was in 2016. So if you look at just the years before our peak in our valley, um, the year before the peak was actually slightly better in terms of poverty measurements than it was um, in terms of uh, uh, the year before our, our valley. There are also a lot of really important demographic differences in terms of violent crime involvement that I think belie the the poverty violence um, uh, sort of link, right? I mean, so you know, uh, black families in New York tend to have significantly lower household incomes than Hispanic families in New York. Yet, um, uh, black males in New York commit violent crime at a significantly higher rate than Hispanic males. Um, you have much higher poverty rates uh, among the Asian community in New York, significantly lower crime rates across the board. Um, there's a really great book by a criminologist named Barry Latzer um, called The Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America. And it's, it's really a fantastic example, uh, just showing how weak the relationship has, has traditionally and historically been between poverty and crime, between other socioeconomic measures and violence. Um, you know, 2007 to 2010 nationally, the unemployment rate nearly doubled yet the homicide rate declined by 15% during that time. Um, you know, the Great Depression, huge, huge rise in the poverty rate, huge rise in the unemployment rate. We did not see a rise in the homicide rate nationally. So, you know, one of the things that I've been critical of is this idea that, you know, we're not going to be able to, to get violent crime in particular under control without solving these big societal problems. I, I, I do think that we have the tools and the knowledge base to do just that without addressing those things, which is not to say that we shouldn't address those things. I think there are really good reasons to address something like poverty, uh, to address something like unemployment. Um, but I, I do think that it's very important for people to understand that when it comes to intelligent, data-driven policing, prosecution, and incarceration practices, we can take a huge, huge bite out of the violent crime problem without having to figure out how to solve some of the most intractable problems that our society has confronted over the last century. Yeah. Uh, great information. You know what, maybe this is a, it's another topic I'll have you back on and we'll talk yeah. about those and dig a little deeper in, into those. Uh, as we wrap this up, um, you know, we talked about these trends that we see across the country. We, you know, we talked about a lot of causation factors for it. What can be done? Uh, just uh, in a simple, and I know this is complex. I, I, I'm, you know, I'm asking you to, to 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 fix everything in just a minute. That's that's great if you could, but uh, but the reality is this is pretty dead. What what 
what steps can be taken now to, you know, what can citizens do? What can agencies do? What could, you know, the, our whole system do to, to improve uh, the, this trend that we're on? Well, for citizens, I think the answer is, you know, a lot of our problems are political in nature and therefore require a political solution. And so it's really on the citizenry to educate itself and, you know, think about where it is that they stand on these issues, how important these issues are to them in their voting decisions, and then make sure that their representatives are aware of that. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. I, I wanted to give people um, a a a a readable, digestible set of arguments on these really, really important issues so that they can better understand them and then take steps uh, as they see fit. Um, the other thing that agencies can do, police agencies in particular, is, you know, trying, uh, it's, it's harder in jurisdictions where the prosecutors are at odds with, with the police department, but try and establish relationships with either your local federal prosecutors or your, your county prosecutors. Um, and identify, use data, use risk assessments. There are ways that you can identify who the sort of small social networks are that are driving, you know, the, the most costly uh, types of violent crime in your communities, and then figure out ways to go after them and build cases that are going to stick. Um, there's a really great study by a criminologist named Aaron Chalfin uh, out of the city of New York called Precision Policing or Can Precision Policing Reduce Crime, I think was the title of the study. Um, but what he found was that simply by identifying the gangs and crews that were driving uh, the bulk of the gun violence in New York and then having these kind of gang sweeps uh, and, and, and gang prosecutions um, initiated against them, you uh, achieved a significant amount of incapacitation benefits that were responsible for like a 30% decline in shootings in New York over a period in which the rest of the country's crime decline had, had essentially leveled off, if not reversed. And so, you know, figuring out how to be more precise with the resources that you have, particularly at a time in which resources are squeezed, um, I think that's that's certainly a step that, that should be taken. Um, I do think that lawmakers need to re-examine a lot of the reforms that they have enacted in haste um, over the last few years. I mean, we've seen our prison population as a country decline by about 20%, maybe 25% if, once we get the 2021 data in. Um, we've seen arrests go down significantly. Um, figuring out ways to make sure that departments and prosecutors and judges and, and correctional systems have the tools that they need and the legal regimes in place to do the jobs that we all want them to do, I think is really, really essential. And then, you know, uh, another really big thing is we have to figure out a way to get more cops on the beat. You know, there was a big infusion of funding into the uh, national policing systems uh, in 1994 as a result of the crime bill. A lot of those officers became eligible for retirement in 2014 and have been leaving the force ever since without any real federal effort to kind of replenish those ranks. And so we've had a longstanding recruitment uh, problem that is turning into both a recruitment and retention problem as morale declines, as the job uh, becomes more hyper scrutinized in what is seen as an unfair way. Um, and so, you know, uh, I do think we're we're at significant we're facing significant risks if we don't close that gap and get more more officers on the street. Yeah, I think I think we're at a crisis. Uh, and and the reason in a way I define that is is that uh, bringing new officers. Well, first off, we got to get the best and brightest uh, to want to take this job. And, and and that environment, you know, the environment that we've been in the past two years has not done the dehumanization of law enforcement has not done a whole lot of good for that. The second uh, important factor this is is if we took in new recruits today. And even if they are the best and brightest, they are years away from being right. 
those effective officers. Uh, I, I appreciate your insight. Uh, great information you share with us. I, I'd like to have you back and talk about some of these other issues and dig into them a little bit more. But but you have a book that, uh, that that's that's now out, getting a lot of praise. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your book and how our uh, listeners and, and viewers could, uh, could get a copy. Sure. It's called uh, Criminal Injustice, What the Push for a Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. Um, you can get it wherever you get your books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, Books a Million, um, you know, hopefully your local bookstore. Um, so, you know, I hope you'll all, all consider reading it. But, you know, the book is really uh, a very concerted and thorough effort to interrogate a lot of the narratives that are at the root of some of the more pernicious reforms that we've seen take hold um, at the root of things like the progressive prosecutor movement, at the root of things like the defund the police movement. Um, and, and it gives readers the data that they need to better understand these issues and to make better arguments. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 I wrote the book with kind of two audiences in mind, right? I wanted to uh, speak to the kind of left of center, but relatively moderate liberal who's kind of been going along with the reform movement uh, out of a sense of, you know, momentum as opposed to real commitment and get them to understand that vulnerable communities, if that's who you're really interested in helping, the best way to do that is not to create the conditions for more crime that will ultimately harm these communities in real ways, but rather to, you know, kind of re-examine reform and be more incremental and more deliberate about how we go about that, that mission. But I also wanted to speak to people who were kind of already skeptical of this movement and give them the vocabulary to push back on it in a more effective way. I mean, there's just so many really dangerous and ultimately false narratives like the idea that the police, you know, uh, uh, you know, are just trigger happy uh, and use force at incredibly high rates. I mean, when I tell people that 99% of arrests are effective without the use of force, they, they look at me like I have five heads, even though that's what the data clearly show. Um, you know, when I, when I tell them that, you know, something like 0.003% of all arrests involve the use of deadly force, they're like, wait, it's got to be way more often than that. And, and, you know, and it's not, and it's just because people aren't really engaging with the data. And that's because it, it's that, that data just very rarely makes its way into the mainstream. And so, you know, this book really pushes back on, on a lot of really key concepts, the idea that we have a mass incarceration crisis, the idea that, you know, uh, uh keeping fathers in the home as opposed to putting them in jail is good for children. The idea that there isn't a cultural aspect uh, that informs our crime problem and that informs some of the police community relations problems that, that I think we're, we're experiencing. The idea that police use force at incredibly high rates and the idea ultimately that our criminal justice system is racist. I mean, that is, I think, uh, you know, one of the, the sort of key motivators of people to support a lot of the reforms that are ultimately hurting black and brown communities the most. Um, is this idea that, you know, systemic racism has kind of taken hold of policing, of incarceration, of prosecution, and therefore we have to break that whole system down. This book argues why that is a, a, a not particularly wise way to go about it. Great. I appreciate it. Looking forward to reading it. And I uh, could not thank you enough for, for sharing your insight uh, with our uh, with our viewers and uh, listeners. Uh, and thank you very much for, for joining us. And, and to our viewers and listeners, thank you for, for tuning in to The Blue View, where we talk about the issues uh, that are vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up every single day in communities across America. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. See you next time.